0: This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing and life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith.
1: And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read.
0: And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers.
1: So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. How are you, Marion?
0: I'm good, David. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. I'm celebrating the 28th anniversary of my 29th birthday,
0: I think. I can do that math, David.
1: right. (laughs) I don't want you to. But uh, I'm doing well today. Thank you. And I have to say that I am delighted to introduce you to our guest today. Now, we've known each other for more than a decade. In fact, Alyssa Altman was the person who kicked my ass and made me understand that I needed to write my Portuguese cookbook way back when. When she was a an editor at Clarkson Potter, but besides kicking writers' butts, Alyssa is an extremely talented writer herself. She's the <clears throat> she's the award-winning author of three memoirs, including Poor Man's Feast, followed by Trafe, and the just released Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing. Her work can be found in Tin House, The Washington Post, The Rumpus, Lit Hub, The Guardian and has been anthologized for six consecutive years in best food writing.
0: Oh, welcome to the show, Alyssa. I am thrilled to meet you. And I'm just going to elbow you right out of the way, David, because I want to have at her immediately. I have so much to ask, Alyssa. Let's start broad and we'll get more granular. But you've said that memoir writing is a particular kind of risk-taking with our own pasts. So let's Mm. talk about that right off the bat, please.
2: Thank you first of all, thank you so much for having me It's really a, a pleasure um and uh, a delight a delight to be here. Memoir writing um is particular risk taking when we step inside of our own stories as narrators uh narrators as characters uh invariably we will discover things that we didn't know. Uh, on the front end, we'll discover things about ourselves. We'll discover things about our stories, uh, the stories uh, surrounding our lives and the lives of the people uh, around us and, our, and the places we live. And so there's always uh, a significant amount of risk taking involved.
1: Well, the failing New York Times has referred <laughs> to your first memoir, Poor Man's Feast, as, quote, one of the finest food memoirs in recent years. And But I think it covers so much more than food, and we both know that. And in it, you laid out all the tensions we all have between carrying out our heritage and being ourselves, and I certainly understand that. And it resonated with me, of course, being Portuguese. Now, first, let's give the listeners a little bit of the story in context for them to understand. Then I want you to talk more about processing and whether you knew the things you wrote about before you wrote about them or after you learned them as you were going along.
2: Well, where, you know, where Poor Man's Feast was concerned, I mean, that was my first memoir and that came Mm -hmm. out in 2013. And I had been writing, um, I had been writing a blog for a while at that point that started, I want to say in 2008 or 2009, that quickly became a narrative blog and it became a place where I was uh, literally experimenting, testing narrative, uh, trying to see if there was anybody out there who was going to be interested in reading long form uh, narrative writing online. And of course I had been told, uh, and and i suspect that perhaps you had been told also that no 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 people just want you know quick in quick out uh recipe yep. head note that's the end and and i never believed that and i i al- you know mm. i always felt that uh where there is and i think there there's certainly room for both and we know that that uh, both have both types of writing of food writing have succeeded but i i i didn't want to i didn't want to go down the road of quick in out recipe yeah. head note. There are other people out there who do that much better than I do. Um, I was more interested in the telling of story and the inhabiting of story and the inhabiting of culture. And I feel very strongly. I mean, I am in my fifties. Uh, David, I know you're in your 40s and celebrating your birthday today. Thank actually, you. thank you so um, much. As so you, you neither
0: know. of you can do math. Right. <laughs> I
2: suck at math, um, and David just gets prettier and prettier with every passing and year, younger and younger, and younger and, and younger and younger. Um, you know, he needed to hear that. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's he deserves it. So, you know what what <laughs> I what I really feel very strongly is that uh, unless we unless we tell our stories, the stories Mm -hmm. of our cultures, the stories of our histories and keep the people um, who came before us alive, those people and their food lives and their myth and their own stories will, will disappear. And it's true. It's our responsibility. It was your responsibility when you wrote your Portuguese cookbook. And again, you know, when you wrote your memoir and, I I feel that uh, we all have to bring that to the table.
0: I love so many things about what you just said. I love the fact that you, you believe in testing your material on the public, and I say this to my students all the time. I say this to other writers all the time. I love the fact that you're keeping these stories alive, but I really love the fact that you proved people wrong, people in publishing wrong when they said, "You've got to go short, get in, get out, give them a recipe and get out of town." Because this is the thing. Good writing is always going to win.
1: Story always wins.
0: And all of these stories allow us to process our own. And in your early memoirs, you beautifully processed your evolution from someone who can whip up any culinary feast into someone who goes to the simple. And the provocation there seems to be meeting your life partner, Connecticut Yankee and the terribly frugal Susan, who serves as such a mirror, the ultimate foil, the very best Greek chorus, I love what you do with her. I I love your life with her, but I love what you do with her on the page. So let's talk about making our loved ones characters in our own work. How do you best look at those people and what do you do with them? Well,
2: I I think that I start uh, from a place of understanding that they are not the only characters. I am a character with them. And um, I'm Mm. actually teaching, uh, I, I just finished teaching a a class on um, on memoir, not not food memoir, um, at Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and um, and I'm teaching another one as we speak right now. And one of the things that I talk about is narrator as character, and the uh, the necessity of that. Um, you know, Vivian Gornick, uh, the great Vivian Gornick, has this incredible. Uh, this incredible quote that I have tacked on my bulletin board above my desk where she says for drama to deepen we must see the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent and I, I think that you know when when I write about family when I write about the people in my in my life I have to see them uh, from all angles and uh, and I have to see myself I have to be able to step away from myself as the person sitting at the Computer or with the pen in my hand, and inhabit the character of the narrator. And I also have a have a very visual, a strong visual sense. I come to a lot of my work visually. And so when I moved, when I made the move from uh, my tiny apartment on East Fifty Seventh Street to um, very tiny Harwinton, Connecticut, uh, down the road from Litchfield in 2000 uh, to, to move in with Susan and to really change my life. Um, it, was, it was like somebody had taken my glasses off and cleaned them and, and uh, given them back to me. Everything was new. Um, I absorbed everything around me uh, like, like a sponge. And I, I also really, um, I, Susan is from that part of the world. She's from Farmington originally, uh, was born in Hartford, Raised in Unionville, which is um, which is sort of a borough, as they say, of Farmington, and she grew up in a very, very different kind of world than than I did, and with a very different background, coming from very different background, and listening to the way um, she interacted with her family. Um, when I joined her family, there were, it was like a, a just a huge uh, Greek chorus. I mean, there was. Multitudes of aunts and uncles, and these people saw each other all the time, and they lived into their nineties, and um, and they were in and out of each other's lives and business, and and whenever I saw them, I mean, it was it was like another chapter unfolded uh, unfolded in front of me. Um, the you know the other side of it is that Susan is also a great reader. She's um, she is also a book designer. I should be really uh, upfront about that. She she's a book designer at Random House, and And she also thinks in, in story. We think, Mm. and we talk in story. Um, Helpful. Very helpful. It is is very helpful. And when I first met her um, and I began spending my weekends in Harwinton, uh, I remember she had a copy of Jane Kenyon's collected essays uh, sitting on her, uh, on her nightstand. And, it, that was her that was her world. That was the world that that Susan loved. Um, small, quiet, not so quiet, uh, bubbling underneath the quiet. And I really learned to listen to the world around me, uh this very changed world around me when I'm when I made my move, which was a shock to mm-hmm. my nervous system.
1: <laughs> it's interesting that you say when Marion asked you about character, the first thing you did was say, I look to myself as a character and this other person in terms of what's happening. And what you talk about really is discovering character in interaction, in what happens between both of you. The space between you and someone else is where character lives. We can do all these paragraphs after paragraphs of describing someone and describing their behavior, but it's in the interaction with us or from one character to another that we see their character in action and we see their character develop. And that's what I think you are so extraordinarily good at, Is we see the action with your mother, with Susan, with the other people in your life, and we see how they act, and we come to understand them, and I think that's really an extraordinary ability, and I think it's very economical at the same time.
0: Very storytelling, yes. It it reveals a great deal of story, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Thank you. You know, I think that
2: um, one of the um, one of the most complicated things that we can talk about uh, when we talk about narrative and the creation and craft of narrative is the issue of voice and where voice mm. comes from, where, where narrative voice comes from. And it's, it's a difficult thing to try and uh, explain to a, new, to a new writer, because when you say something like, you know, what is the voice of the, narr- of the narrator? What is the voice of the story? What, what is emerging on the page? Uh, new writers often think of actual voice, uh, yes. The excited voice, the sad voice, the disappointed voice, the angry voice, and that's not what we're talking about we're talking about the overall narrative sensibility of of the story, and that voice, and you have to you have to really get quiet and sort of listen for it and it doesn't always emerge in the first draft or the second draft or sometimes even the third, but that voice often emerges in the spaces between. Uh, conver- spaces in conversation. Um, when I was teaching a couple of weeks ago up in Provincetown, I was talking about um, about negative space, about the use of negative space, and how our um, our inclination, uh, because we live in a world of noise and action, and, and we don't like quiet, um, how we are often inclined to fill negative space with Color with description, with picture, mm-hmm. with with you know, with movement, with action, with character, with more character, with food, and to take a step back and let the uh, let the narrative breathe and and let the story settle. That's the place where voice begins to bubble up to the surface.
0: Such good advice.
1: And I think what's interesting when you're talking about the idea of letting voice bubble up. From the surface, of course, you're worth poor man's feast was first, then trafe, my life as an orthodox outlaw, which I love as a title, uh, covers growing up in the 60s and 70s in Queens. And quote, you always say that you're always on the outside looking in and you're searching for ways to nourish and sustain yourself. And but then you write your next book, which is Motherland. So there's such rich material in all of this, and you tease it out beautifully, but then you tease out the other, another book, and then a third book. So how did you differentiate the material from one book to the next without having any overlap, but yet really writing about the same time frame, which is from your adolescence all the way to your adult life?
2: Right. Well, it, you know, I think with with, mother, with Motherland, Motherland really um was born out of a very different uh a different place in my a little a little place in my brain that that was not that connected uh at least not consciously connected uh to to Trafe and to poor man's feast i mean when poor man's feast came out you know i wrote it it was a it was a linear story there was some backstory in it but it was primarily a linear story uh, that took place mostly over the course of a year, um, and it, it was if you if you timelined it, you, you could either easily timeline it um, in a, in uh, in, a, in the course of a year and I knew how the story be- was going to begin, and I knew how the story was going to end because I wrote it from a place uh, from a vantage point of being able to look back and see that okay i 'm now living in the country. And this is who I was when I lived in the city. And this is the way mm-hmm. I thought of food. And I had a lot of readers say to me, um, you, you know, your grandparents were in that story and your aunt and uncle and your cousins and your mother. And how did you I want to know more about the the person who was living in the city who found themselves, uh, you know, growing up in a home you know, where mm-hmm. where her mother was just a terrible cook. Uh God bless her. Just a horrible cook. And you know, and then you found yourself in cooking school and it, working at Dean and DeLuca and um and completely obsessed uh with with all things culinary and, and and gastronomical. And and so I started to really think about about backstory and the fact that that we all of us, my grandparents, my father, uh, my parents we were all on the outside looking in. I mean, I had the benefit of a lot, as as a lot of my, uh, my, my friends in uh, middle school and grade school did, in the 1970s in Queens, early 1970s and late 60s. It was a very mixed community, and we were all mm-hmm. in and out of each other's houses all the time. We didn't mm-hmm. think anything of it. We didn't think that it was that extraordinary to do that, but my, you know, my father's parents had come over in the early part of the 1900s uh, from Eastern Europe, and they both had been very uh, raised in Orthodox homes. Um, and they had to straddle the fence between the new world and the old world, and those things. Uh, that question um, affected every part of their lives, and especially at the table.
0: I can relate to this. I also grew up in the sixties and seventies in Queens. And so I just wonder if we ran on the same circles, circles. at all <laughs> and I, and that's tremendous. And my mother too was the, well, she was, she was competitively the worst cook that ever lived. <laughs> And we, we thought of entering her in varieties of contests but um, it was the time she scorched the kitchen kitchen ceiling the one time she tried to make something flambe that she gave up oh um, and and it's just a story I, I I need to write but you and that outside looking in thing is fascinating. you let us be the ones looking in when you wrote this monthly column in the Washington Post entitled feeding my mother. And uh, it ended in May of 2016. I think Um, it's a stunning run of pieces that, that alternately had me smacking my head and rolling my head over my desk, groaning for you as you dealt with someone who is as narcissistic, dazzling, pathologically needy and imperious as anyone I've ever witnessed in literature. And so you let us look in with you um you let us look in it was an extraordinary way to get us engaged in this topic so the column can you talk to us about how you started that and was it with the full sense of that you this was going to be a book
2: you know it was it there it was absolutely not connected to a book at that at that time at all um the interesting thing was that um my editor at The Washington Post, Joe Yonin, and I had been talking a lot um over the years about how could we work together and and I was not going to be uh delivering him recipes. he has a lot of people on you know in his in his universe who do that again a lot better than I do, and that was not the angle from which um the point of view from which i w- I wanted to write for him but hmm. the the elephant in the room. She would kill me for saying that. Um, given her, given her, her, his her slender st-
0: obsession, her, her size <laughs>
2: obsession. <Yes>. The <laughs> slender elephant in the room um, was always my mother, and yeah. and I had started uh, to write other small pieces here and there about. Uh, she always showed up on, my, you know, on my blog. Um, I wrote about her, my mother and eggs and the the fact that my mother, that eggs were always my mother's mood barometer. And the angrier she got over the years, uh, the harder she cooked the eggs until oh, they were yeah. like the oak was brown instead of yellow. And <laughs> you, you, you all know what that, what that's like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... We we worked together and came up with the idea for a column about trying to nurture someone who will not be nurtured, someone who is actually fearful of sustenance. And it be, it started out as a column literally about feeding my mother. How do, you know? How is it possible to feed someone as they're growing older? Um, who has a pathological fear of food? Uh, when we now know that food is such an important plays such an important role in uh, in staying healthy and uh, vital um, over the over the aging process and, and years. And so that was the jumping off point, and mm-hmm. we knew that there was not gonna be any, that there were not going to be any recipes in it because my mother doesn't cook and and she hasn't turned her stove on since Clinton was in office i think but um <laughs> but what it ultimately wound up being if you look at the arc of the column, it wound up being a combination of um of you know story of the two of us and role reversal, the inevitable role reversal that every Uh, mother elderly god forgive me for saying that mom sorry elderly mother and her middle-aged daughter aging in parallel face together and the fact that how that that many of us are incapable of sustaining and nurturing others who will not be nurtured and sustained and coming to a certain place of acceptance and love and compassion and finding compassion where there possibly had not been any, uh, any before. The interesting thing, and is that, and I just want to add this as an aside, is that um, they, you know, they tell you never read the comments. And of course, the first, first, uh, um, the first column. I did read the com- the comments, and it was uh, some guy wrote in and said, you know, why don't you just give her insurance and be done with it? Oy. And
0: and they were a kind lo- of missing the point of the column,
2: right? But there were a lot there were a lot of really interesting comments that were like that, that came that came primarily from men. And mm-hmm. the women readers were more inclined to say, Oh, my gosh, this is you know, I'm trying to get my mother to eat this, and I'm trying to get my mother to do this, and and you know, the men were like, "Problem solved, give her insurance, you know, right. and yeah. and get on with get on with things." You know, what well, I don't understand what the problem is. So, so it was a really interesting experience, and and I and I backed away from that, thinking, "Okay, I you know, it's t- now time for me to write about her and to write to write about myself."
1: And w- was that the moment you decided to turn a lot of this into the book?
2: There is virtually none of the column at all in the book mm. um the 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 column was really about how do I feed her? How do I care for this person?
0: You know, you, you say that, and that's, and that's what's so fascinating to me. You You say in your Washington Post column that your mother would rather starve than run out of eyeliner, one of my yep. great new favorite lines. <laughs> your goal is to feed her. Hers is not to eat. It is the perfect setup for conflict. So how do we report on the conflict we have in our lives and deal with the feelings it evokes? Get it on the page, but also process it at the same time.
2: It's, it's you know, it's very, very complicated. And, and um, when I wrote Motherland, I had uh, in the, the earliest drafts, I had a difficult time of finding the place into the story. And very often when I start a new book, um, I will write from the chapter that reveals itself to me first. And that chapter may wind up being in the middle of the book. It may wind up being at the end of the book. Um, and, and building the book out from there. And I, I spent probably um, four or five months, six months, I wouldn't say spinning, but really thinking long and hard about how, what was going to be the entry point into into the book. And uh, I was still on my book tour for Trafe, And I came home one Saturday night, uh, sat down on the couch, kicked my shoes off. And my mother called and said, I fell. And mm. it was that moment. It's that the call that every one of us gets um, at some point. Uh, I, w- I lived two hours away from her. And that was the point at which I knew our story had turned. Our story had changed. Yes. And that my proximity to her, emotional proximity, uh, physical proximity, was going to the distance, the safe distance that I had put between us, all the, for all those years, uh, and that distance does not uh, imply lack of love. Distance means no. distance means safety. All that all that distance was going to slam shut, and that was and I went through the following six months being her primary caregiver, getting everything set up, dealing with. Uh, addictions that we discovered uh, that we had no idea. Well, we kind of had an idea. I shouldn't say no idea. A little bit of an idea, but didn't want to deal with. Um, We had to deal with those. We had to deal with financial issues, the complicated practical issues of caring for someone who will not be cared for living in another state, Uh, the narcissism issues, mental health issues, aging issues. Mm -hmm. And I wrote the book from the inside of that story while it was unfolding.
0: Yeah, I call that writing in real time, and I and I teach. And that's it, hard to do
1: because there's no perspective.
0: Teach a lot about it, and it's. And so, were you taking notes? Were you carrying a notebook? Were you using your phone? How were you getting it down on the page? Getting it down in your. I
2: head. did. I did all of those things. I I always carry a notebook. I've carried a notebook with me probably since I was fifteen. And and if you saw what my office looked like right now, you'd laugh because I am surrounded by them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, me too. you know, I, it's, it's, it's really incredible. I mean, Random House is actually doing a, uh, a little uh, photo thing that they do about called writers at work. Um, And so you'll see the inside, the inside of my, my office, but I, I wrote everything down. I told her at one point that I wanted to talk to her about something that had gone on in the past that I will not give away about her father and food mm-hmm. and love and i said can i tape you and she said you know asking a, a former singer can i tape you of course you know <laughs> here's a, all i have to do is say mom can you speak into the microphone mom, and she was sing like "Sing into the microphone you know sing out louise and so um, and and That's so great. you know and so there was that and i wrote and wrote and wrote i came home from her house and I wrote, I probably wrote a thousand pages of manuscript that I, that I then had to whittle down and chisel down and um, and and a lot wound up on the cutting room floor. Um, well, you but, say you
0: teach, I know you teach memoir writing, and in your description of a class, I read your description of your current class, you say you write, you're going to teach about the ability to curate one's own story. So in this particular difficult topic of our mothers all of us can relate to trying to report on our mothers how do you curate within what's a hot button to you but not necessarily going to make a point to the reader how do you pick out the details that work
2: well i think that you have to listen very very carefully and um again you know as as you say There is uh, there is the kitchen sink approach, which, of course, is the wrong approach. There's the linear approach, which can often just be autobiography. Um, And then there is memoir. And memoir is, you know, a sliver, I think, a sliver of time and space. And I wrote and wrote. And wrote and rewrote and revised and revised and edited and edited. I have a wonderful relationship with my extraordinary editor um, at Ballantine Books. And she herself had known my work for a really long time. And she was, you know, she was, I wouldn't say she was brutal, but she was brutal a couple of times and said, you know, this 120 pages is really lovely, but it's gotta go yep. because it bears absolutely no. Uh, it bears nothing on on the story. And and when I when I teach curation, and I, I actually just taught a class last night on hierarchy, on narrative hierarchy. What are the things that are going to that are going to pull the narrative elements? That are going to pull the reader through the story. What is the chord? What is the mystery spot? Um, and. When I read something, and when somebody else reads something, you know we may come to two different places. I mean, that happens you know that happens all the time. but at the at the root, this this story was about um again, certainly it's the you know the Vivian Gornick situation versus story thing. there was it's a story of uh, aging and mental health and addiction and 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 uh, love and all all of those things. But, but, you know, that's the situation. The story is a story of isolation and compassion um, and forgiveness. And mm-hmm. that may sound pat and it may sound canned. I got to a, to a place at the end of the book that I did not expect to get to at the beginning of the book. I didn't oh, that's know, wonderful. You know, I didn't know what I was going to find. Uh, we have not had a good relationship over the years. Um, and yet... If people try and pit us against each other because we're so different and we are each other's foils, I mean, it's just that's the way it is. You know, it's 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 we've been that way certainly my whole life. We will turn into uh, like we'll turn into a pair of bonded grizzlies. I mean, we're fiercely Mm -hmm. protective of each other, even though we we drive each
0: other out of our minds. It makes for such good story. It makes for such beautiful reading. Thank you.
1: The last line of the book just got me because it has so it. there's so much portent in there there's so much meaning in the last line of the book the last thing your mother says which was pretty astounding to me yeah thank you so much Alyssa for coming on the show we appreciate it
2: thank you thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure
1: the book is Motherland a memoir of love loathing and longing by Alyssa Altman You can find Mother Lynn wherever books or audiobooks are sold, and you can read more about Alyssa at her blog, poormansfeast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to us wherever you go.